Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. G'day, 21st century joyriders. Set your seats to recline and bring your tray tables down as we serve you up another tasty, tasty episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, our pilot for the next 40 minutes or so. It's Captain Matthew Dickerson. Oh, Captain, my Captain, how's your week been? Oh, that's a scary concept, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And we still have tray tables. Why do we still have tray tables Mm. on a plane? It seems such an old, quaint thing, doesn't it? Especially some of the old planes you get in. You know, in your old plane, when you see the cigarette but hold Oh, up. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And where you, where you <laughs> ash your cigarette while you're smoking on the plane and you just ash that there. And I got into a plane like that one day and the kid said, Dad, what's this little hook thing here? And I explained that was where you'd ash your cigarette and they just couldn't believe that you could be on a plane, plane smoking. smoking. I remember yeah. I was on a plane once many years ago that was smoking and it was the – and I, I – I'm not a fan of smoking. I don't like people smoking around me. And it was the non-smoking section and the smoking section. But where I was sitting was the last seat in the non-smoking section. And there's nothing really to separate you. Yeah? <laughs> it was just a bit of air. It was air. just a hope. <laughs> That's right. And the next one was the smoking section. So the guy smoking in front of me, I couldn't say much because he was in the smoking section mm-hmm. and I was in the non-smoking. But you just go, it's just one tube and we're all the same air. And yeah. maybe the air's blowing in different directions. But I don't know. It just seemed like a bit we of a We tolerated a lot back in the 80s, didn't we? We did, indeed. We did. <laughs> But I didn't want to talk about tray tables this week. I wanted to talk about Parkrun. Now, Parkrun, of course, is a phenomenon. It's gone across the world. It is a phenomenon, yeah. It is. And when people say, what is Parkrun, the most common description is it's a timed run or walk. And Mm. that's a good description of it. Some people get very competitive about it. Some people just go along for a nice outing. But I love the variety of people there. But I must admit... This week was the first time I've volunteered. I have oh, run at a few park runs. Well done. But well finally, done. finally volunteered. Good on you. A council group organised some councillors and some employees to come along and be the volunteers. And so I thought that was great. What I was impressed with, though, from a technology side, was the app that's now used to do the timekeeping as part of park run. Many years ago, I remember looking at what they had to do, and it was a fairly cumbersome process where someone had a modified stopwatch. There was a device that you had as a park run, I don't know, giver or a park run person that, yeah. that did the whole park run, and you recorded all the times on that, and then the tokens were recorded in some other device, and then you had to try and marry them up at oh, the back end somehow. Oh. Yeah, so it was all a bit clumsy, and you can imagine for people that are volunteers that are doing park run just to help their community out. Week after week, there'd week be hours, week. if you had a big group, there'd yeah. be hours of work there matching it all back up. Yeah. Well, they they had an automated process where it did match up, but it was still a bit clumsy. Mm. But those volunteers get a bit worn out. And again, you're right, every week, and lots of them, hundreds and hundreds come and run. Our park run here is very popular, so hundreds of people running in it. And you've got to get those times right because people are out there trying yes. to do their PVs. Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm quite impressed. There's an app you download as a volunteer, and it's got a timing app. So you start the time when they say go, and then each person that comes across the line, you just hit the button to make sure that's right. You listen to the person calling out the tokens to make sure that your numbers on screen are matching. And then when it's finished, you just say upload. You don't know where it goes. You don't have to care where it goes as a volunteer. You just upload it. Obviously, there's a a connection to the park run that you're at so that you know that it's that one. There's a QR code you've got to scan. And then the same with the tokens. People use the same app and they've just got the token scanner. They hit that button on the same app and they scan the tokens and the person's barcode. At the end of that, they just upload. Now, there's multiple people taking tokens because obviously it gets a bit busy over the line. So you might have three, four people taking tokens. They get uploaded and... 
from the user's perspective, that's their job done. Fantastic. At the back end, the matching is automatic. Then those results are sent out, uploaded to the website, sent out to the participants. I Very just fluid. Think that's yeah. right. And one of the ways I think that Apple's been incredibly su- successful across a whole range of different products they've brought out is they've said, we'll take a concept or we'll take a product and we'll just make it work. Take away all those clumsy, complicated things you've got to do. An MP3, MP3 player is a good example. There were MP3 players out before an iPod came along, but Apple just got it right and made it simple, made it simple to put music on there. Mm. And people said, oh, I can use it now. And it's the same with this. It probably would have scared volunteers a bit to do the old-fashioned way, and then someone had to be Mm. some sort of skill or expertise to get them all matched up and married up and uploaded. Whereas now it's like, hey, can you do timekeeping? Uh, What have I got to do? You've got to download an app. Sure, I can do that. And away you go. Can you scan a barcode? I've scanned QR codes a lot, so I know how to do that. So it's just a great example of make it really simple, and then anyone can use it. And don't get chatting while you're timekeeping because <laughs> if you do. <laughs> so the other thing is that most of them have two timekeepers. Yeah. So you've got your primary timekeeper and if they get distracted and they say, what number are you up to? 57. Oh, I've only got 52 on my screen. There's a backup timekeeper and the backup timekeeper is obviously matching those numbers and making sure it's right. So you've got those yeah. two there. Uh, mistakes still happen, but people aren't competing for Olympic gold medals. And no, if, you, right. if you don't crack your PB this week, there's always next week. You don't have to wait four years to do the next time. You've got a week later. You've only really got to be on the ball for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then the people are coming in sort of a, a little bit later. They're a little bit less worried about Oh, what James, are you saying those people that do the 45-minute times aren't as obsessed about their PB? Oh, everyone wants to beat their PB. But... Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the ones at the pointy end are probably the ones really obsessed with it. And the ones at the back end are just happy to get out and... Do a bit yeah. of a walk. But anyway, good to see that technology and that simple technology revolving around that. And then there's all sorts of great stats they pull out of all that information, how many kilometres have been run and how many park runners and how many new park runners and average times and how many PBs, so all that stuff. I love all that data-rich environment. Once you've got that first part of it mm. fairly accurate, then you can deliver all this great data to people. And the message is also... Find out where your local uh, park run is and get your butt down there. Yeah, yeah, and it is Saturday easy. When I, when I travel, I do try. Over the last two months, I've probably run at a park run in Perth, one in Darwin, two in Sydney, and then obviously our local park runs here. So I, I do enjoy it. If I'm somewhere on a Saturday yeah. morning, I go, let's find one here. They're pretty easy to find, and there's a friendly group of and it people. Can be a park walk as well, so you can just stroll for your five Park chat months. is park what some people call it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, that's that's it for the what's happened this week from a technology perspective from me, James. Excellent. Well, let's start off with a story that'll impact your day like a wayward asteroid, folks. It's that time of year again. For those of you holding out, the wait is nearly over. The 2022 new release of emojis is on its way. Matt, this is where you tell us what we can look forward to in the burgeoning world of emojis. Smiley face. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs up. Steamers, uh, sort of like streamers and uh, champagne cork popping. You have been onto your emojis, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I've just got to learn how to say them properly. <laughs> I'm in a hurry and all excited. That's right. You should be excited. <laughs> but there's a bit more emphasis on the number this year. So last year we talked about them. 112 new emojis got released last year. That's almost too many to choose from. <laughs> it is added to the ones that already exist. But this year they've cut it down a bit. There's only 31 new emojis coming out. It was just getting too much. Is that to say that, that when they released, the, what did you say, 121 or whatever before? 120 112 last year. 112, sorry. okay. Yep. So, so many of them didn't get used that um, they decided to back off or something. Well, and I can't believe how some of them didn't get used last year. There was a pregnant person. 
there was a low battery sign. I'm amazed that wasn't an emoji already. And there was a crutch. I don't know, you got injured. I think they're quite usable. Yeah, that's right. That was three of the 112. Considering that I use smiley face and thumbs up pretty much only. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had someone send me a message the other day and they wrote the word words, thumbs up, because they said, I don't know how to use emojis, <laughs> but I want to look like I'm using emojis. <laughs> so they just wrote the words. That's great. Not sure if that's the idea of them. Anyway, so 31 new emojis. Probably the two that will be used the most out of these 31 are the violently shaking head. So if you want to say ah. no to someone, you can just say no, or you could send them soon a violently shaking, mm. as in side that's to side shaking. No. That's, that's, a, that's a definite no. Right. And not shaking as in I'm cold, shivering shaking. <laughs> I mean shaking side to side and saying I really am meaning no this time. Yeah. Don't so that's, use it. That's one. Maybe no. That's not a maybe no. That is a <laughs> damn hell no. And then the other one is a mean goose. <laughs> now, of course. I'm not why sure. Why would you have a mean goose? <laughs> I'm not sure. Why, we, why have we waited this long? Goose? Well, it's just, I thought a goose might have been enough. And I thought the goose might be the kind of thing you might say to someone that's being a bit of a goose, you'll send them a goose emoji. But a mean goose, Mm. it's very specific about being a mean goose. (laughs) The the, the interesting part here is that we don't know what they'll look like yet because once they're approved, and of course they're not approved, this is just the final round. Sorry, we don't know what they're going to look like. There's just, uh, we've got an idea here. I'm going to... We've got so an idea. that's their job, just to come up with ideas. And but they might suggest... They don't have to draw them yet. <laughs> they don't have to draw them because it's up to all the individual manufacturers to put their interpretation on oh. it. So a Samsung phone or a Google emoji okay. or an Apple phone, for example... Slightly different. They might have their own interpretations of these emojis. They get given permission by the Unicode Consortium to go out and say, now you can have a shaking head emoji. <laughs> And then they go and draw what their interpretation is. <laughs> so, they, so someone's just got the, the like the the portfolio. Oh, you, you're on the main goose portfolio. That's right. right. Can you go and draw a main goose? Because we've now got permission to use that emoji and make it small. Obviously, so, so small enough to be able to fit in your little message, but. Big enough to be able to see that it's mean. Big enough to be able to see it's a mean goose in that couple of millimetres <laughs> that people can see it in. You should be all right with that. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. What could go wrong? <laughs> but it is even all the different faces, and we've talked about some of the variety of faces before, the different expressions on the faces there, when they're so small, normally you're looking at them in a text message, for example. Yeah. They're so small, you've got to really look at it. Are they... Are they up me because they're giving me a mean face or is that just a... That goose looks a bit happy. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) What am I meant to say? They're calling me a goose but they're happy about it? Are are they saying I'm silly but I'm happy silly? I'm not sure. So look out for those ones there. The final round of approval will be in September. So you won't actually see these released on any devices Ah, until September. months. (laughs) That's right. What are we going to do in the meantime? The next time I want to say hell no to someone, I'm going to say, (laughs) can I just give you a couple of months before I give you my answer? (laughs) Or you're happy to accept words. (laughs) It's not good enough. It's just not good enough. So keep an eye out for those. Sometime in September, we'll have the 31. And it might not be the 31. That's the final round that have been recommended for approval. Mm. There might still be some spanners in the works about those for whatever reason. Maybe there'll be some animal groups who say you shouldn't be using a geese in that way or mm. geese in that way. Animal rights activists uh, unite. Um, and I hear they've got some new colours for your hearts as well. Is that right? Uh, new colours for hearts, that's right. Not how enough colours for hearts. How days. many colours do you need? Because I thought red what was the obvious one. What does a peach heart? What does that symbolise? When do I give someone a peach heart? Rather than a red heart. Or, or a salmon heart. A salmon heart. <laughs> or as opposed to a blank internal heart, just an outline of a heart, 
so they can fill in their own colour. Oh, wow. So it's pretty deep, isn't it? I'm going to spend way too long thinking about which emoji to use now. Which colour heart to use. Can you just respond to my message? Wait up, wait up. I'm just trying to get the right emoji. Am I only allowed to give purple hearts if um, if I'm wounded in hospital or they're wounded in... I would think but that's. In wartime I think that's fair and reasonable. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, you you can't I think go. I received on. a Purple Heart, and I didn't. I haven't been in any combat at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Someone's using it incorrectly. Mm. Yeah, Sit up straight for this next story, folks. Good posture is the key to a lifetime free of debilitating. Uh, I'll say that word again. Put my teeth back in. Free of debilitating back pain. And associated the associated maladies that ensue from that. Well, for those of you with chronic slouches, the good news is that there's a product coming on the market and you're going to love it. It's a vest that'll fix your posture. It includes self-powered fabric and it's comfy too. Sit up, Matt. Shoulders back. <laughs> Tell us about these triboelectric nanogenerators. I was slumping then when you said that too. You I'm were. in trouble straight away. Come on, you can have a bad back <laughs> right. before we know it. And you've got lots of other health issues that are caused by that poor posture and the yeah, bad back. Once your back goes, it just it opens the floodgate to a whole lot of other things. And yeah, Have we got an emoji for bad back, surely? Mm. It'd have right, to hang be on, on there. Right now I'm shaking my head furiously, but I can't because <laughs> it's not a release. You've got a couple months' time shake your head furiously at me. So this is a really clever concept because people do sit at the desk sometimes for many hours and they sit very poorly. So this particular fabric has got sensors built into it and it's self-powered that essentially can detect the way you're sitting and you say, well, good, but what's it do with that information? Does it start to give me some electric shocks? And, and then it <laughs> sticks needles into you. <laughs> right. Sit up straight. <laughs> sit up straight. <laughs> yeah. I thought of those ideas. And I thought maybe they'd go that far, but they didn't think they'd probably torture. sell that many. Okay. So what it does is it actually shows you your seating position on a computer, on an app or on a computer, so you can see how you're sitting and then it gives you recommendations in terms of how you should be sitting to get the green light and get the happy emoji to basically say that, yes, you're now sitting correctly. So you can see the way you're sitting. It'll say, no, move that there. And you're kind of moving your body around while you're doing it like I'm doing now and hopefully everyone listening to us the same thing. And then, oh, all green now, great, I'm sitting correctly. I'll just have to stay sitting that way. It's kind of like my mum years and years ago. Just she, in, yeah. She'd poke you in different spots, <laughs> would she? <laughs> Sit up straight. So the, the, the actual fabric is probably what I'm more fascinated with. A smartphone screen, the way it works is it has an array of sensors across the top and bottom and the sides. When you push your finger in one spot, it detects an interruption to the electric field there and then says, oh, at row X and at uh, column 28, that's where our finger's been placed, so I'll assume that it's like a mouse click on a screen right there. And this does something similar where it's got a whole range of pieces of fabric and and sensors that are going across and up the actual fabric itself. So it knows different parts of there and it can detect pressure in those different parts there. Just the same as if it was a big flat smart screen or smartphone screen, it's wrapped around you. So you put it on, it's fairly tight. It's not so tight you can't breathe, but it's fairly snug probably would be a better word. And then with that, it can detect the way you're moving and the way you're sitting and where there are different pressure points to then give you recommendations as to how to sit properly. There you go. (laughs) Fascinating, isn't it? Before you know it, good posture and fewer bad backs. Yeah. All the chiropractors out there are saying, no, no, this won't work. Please. This will never work. Now, the battle to draw kids away from online video games is a battle well known to a legion of parents. Dragging kids away for meals and bedtime, and even for just some plain fresh air and a brain break, requires some real dedicated willpower on the part of the parents, that's for sure. 
Well, we've all known that we need to fight the good fight, and the hours and hours and hours of gaming are ultimately likely to come with some other form of mental health tax on your kids. What we didn't have up to now was a definitive diagnosis. Matt, a new study coming out of the Macquarie University has uh, brought some important news for parents. Yeah, so all those parents out there who are thinking their child is being impacted by gaming, they may well have a valid case in some of those examples. There was a study done of about 1,000 teenagers, and they found that 10% of those had a problem with video gaming, but 3% over all of those 1,000 had something known as internet gaming disorder. Now, IGD, as most people call it, Mm -hmm has been included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders since 2013. So it's actually been recognised for the last nine years as a valid disorder. Now, it's not just my son doesn't come to the dinner table and eat his dinner and gets a bit annoyed when I say come along to the dinner table. It's a bit more serious than that. And so people do find that with some of these people that are impacted, some of these teenagers in particular, impacted by IGD, they actually see some changes in their brain. So they get a bit of brain atrophy because they're just not utilising their brain. Even though Mm. gaming might look like it uses your brain, sometimes gaming is very competitive and you're doing the same thing over and over and over. So you're not thinking, you're not trying to solve a problem as such. You just go. A small part of the brain is maybe overdeveloped, but the the rest of the brain is, yeah, not being. And sometimes the problem-solving part of it or the critical thinking part of it. Right, I've got to go do that thing there. Oh, I didn't get it. I'll do it again. I'll do it. So you're not really solving a problem. You're just trying to get a little bit better at getting through that particular part. So that's certainly a part of it. So a change in the brain. But also they found that some people that were affected by IGD were getting to the point where they were missing school, their grades were falling. They were lying about how much time they were spending on their gaming, abandoning pastimes, abandoning mm. friendships. Sounds like marriage a bit, doesn't it? Some oh. parts of it there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get myself in trouble there. So, <laughs> so, oh, um, back and, up, back up. <laughs> and then getting to the point where when the parents or the carers start to say, Johnny, you've been spending too much time on that game, we're going to turn it off, then they start to become violent and start mm. to really react negatively to that whole process. And, and again, there's a fine line there. Your kids say, no, no, I want to keep playing this game. I've almost finished this level. No, we're going to turn off and have dinner. Oh, come on, mum or dad. And there's one level of annoyance, but then there's a a more serious level. So so if if you had a child affected by IGD, you'd probably know about it because you would have some severe issues just trying to get your child to get away from that and participate in the rest of the world. Giving up their sport or not seeing friends and just spending all their time in there. Oh, losing sleep, you know, getting up in the middle of the night and sneaking onto the video game yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah that's um, right. That sort of stuff. Yeah, so that's that's all part of that process. So parents out there, if you have been worried about it, then be concerned because there are specific mental disorders that have been associated with too much gaming. So it's not just um, being a bit of an old prude or being a, a bit mean to my kids, not letting them play games because that's what all the kids mm. do now. But no, you probably need to look at it a bit deeper than that. And it's good to see some studies being done on it because yeah. every parent out there will talk to you about their kids playing too much on a game or spending too much time gaming. But is it a real disorder? No, no, it's probably not. But no, it re- is a real disorder, again, recognised since 2013. And while, folks, we might not have a lot of solutions for what to do about it right now for you, but uh, just just acknowledging there is an issue is probably, yeah. if this is something that affects you, it's something that possibly um, you need to look into a little bit deeper. Yeah. IGD. And, and, and IGD. And, and probably part of the, the main age group that they really focus on in terms of the age group 
severely impacted by it. Uh, it's probably around that 11 to 13 age group. Mm. And that's the age when kids are going into high school typically. Yeah. Pretty tough time in their social lives anyway, going from primary school, you're the king of the kids, to suddenly yeah, senior also school. Yeah, puberty's hitting yeah. and there's all these other things that are yeah, messing up with your brain chemistry. That's and right. And suddenly they're junior in the big school. So there's yeah. all those things that are happening socially. So it's pretty easy to escape to games, but then to get a bit too deep into them. So yeah, yeah be aware of it. Yeah, awareness. Online review system carries a lot of clout in the modern day marketplace and as we discussed last week, it can be used as a tool for extortion, but it can also be used to overinflate the quality of, good, of goods and services and the whole thing is becoming a, a bit messy. So now Amazon has its knickers in a knot and is looking to take legal action on 10,000 Facebook review groups, 10,000 of them folks around the world. Matt, this messy, does messy even begin to describe <laughs> what is happening to with this online rating system? And what's Amazon got so hot under the collar about? I actually love this story for one reason in particular, James. If there's some way that someone can work out a way to game a system, to mm. get some advantage out of it, people will do it. People are very yeah. creative. I'm not saying they're honest or moral or ethical, but they're creative. But give them a chance <laughs> and they will come up with an idea. And this is exactly what they do here. So there are groups out there that will say, oh, James, you just released a new widget. Would you like that widget to go through the roof in sales? You're going to list it on Amazon. Do you want us to sell? Oh, sure. Right. Pay us some money and we'll go out and make sure it goes, becomes a bestseller or you make sure you sell heaps of product. So you pay the same as you would an advertising program. You go and advertise in social media or advertise in traditional media and you say, great, I'm advertising my product. So what some of these products then do is they get out there, and again, there's one there that I found that had 43,000 members on it, and they say to their members, okay, there's a new product on Amazon, please buy it, then put a review that's obviously a five-star review, a, a glowing review of this new <laughs> product that James just released, and once we see that review, we'll give you money back for that product. So they're effectively using the money that you spend oh, on marketing oh, yeah. to... Get people, like they're paying for the product, but yeah. getting people to review the product yeah. and give it glowing reviews. So people searching out there for different products, and they say, wow, look at this new product. It's only been out for two or three weeks, and it's already it's got 100 five-star reviews, and these people are glowing about it. Now, people take a lot of notice reviews. We talked about it with the restaurant reviews last week. People put almost as much emphasis in those reviews as they do when they talk to their friend physically. They don't take a lot of notice of ads that makes them aware of a product. But yeah. to recommend a product, they talk to a friend, yep, go and buy that product. Okay, I'll go and buy it. They see a review, it's almost as powerful as that. You don't mm. know who the person is reviewing it, but you still, wow, all these reviews are so positive. I better go and buy that product. So if used honestly, that review system, the online review system, is a very good system. Correct. But we're just looking at all the ways that it can be mal malappropriated. Oh, yeah, man. so they do that. They Exactly right. They, they appropriate the review system for their own benefits you pay as a, an advertiser, and you may pay quite innocently. When someone says, we'll make sure you sell 10,000 widgets next week, you go, oh, okay, it's too good a promise. Here's my payment for that. And they go and do it by getting to essentially buy lots of that product for other people to then leave those reviews. Amazon is clever enough that they only let people review a product that have bought it. Hence this process where you've got to buy the product first yeah. and then leave the review and then you get your money back for it. So you essentially, as an end user, you get a free widget. Fantastic. That's great. I didn't pay for that. And all I had to do was leave a review. Oh, that seems all right. What could be unethical or immoral about that? I'm not stealing from anyone. I bought a product. 
I got paid back the money for it, and I said what a great product it was. Haven't really tried it out yet. I don't know if it's any good or not, but anyway, I've left a good review. See, that's the bit. That's the bit that uh, that I feel has overstepped the line. Yeah, I've made some stuff up about it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Amazon is now targeting some of these Facebook groups. So they're going out to try and find these groups. And as you said, there's about 10,000 they've found so far of these fake Facebook review sites. And so they're going out, they're finding these. They've got site, They've got names like Amazon Product Review, names that seem obvious, and then, again, they're going through that process and then working with Facebook to get them shut down. But I imagine it's not just Facebook. I imagine there are lots of social media sites out there doing something similar, but Amazon is, is really targeting the Facebook ones. They're the ones where they found the worst action is happening. So it's a really interesting situation, and, again, it's that modern society. Imagine having this conversation 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when you'd say people are being paid to buy a product to leave a review that will generate more sales and you go, you're sure that's going to happen one day? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a crazy concept, but it is happening right Here now. Here we are. So unless you've completely moved off the grid and chucked a modern-day Grizzly Adams, you've probably noticed that we're in a bit of an energy crisis. Anyone who has to pay power bills has gotten used to that hollow feeling experienced as they open the email and seeing the number on the bill similar to the uh, price of a small car. But for some people who are generating solar power, throwing several batteries into their garage is proving to be quite a lucrative option, Matthew. It is. So people are getting electricity, buying it, and selling it, or they're not buying it, they're generating, generating it during the it. day, yeah, yeah. and then selling it when the price selling is the most appropriate. They need a battery for that. Now, I might have mentioned that I was down at a wind farm recently, and one of the things I found fascinating at the wind farm was a screen in the main office of the wind farm that had the spot price of electricity. Every five minutes it updated, mm. and it was ranging from plus $15,000 per, this is megawatt hour, not kilowatt hour, down to negative 2,000, and you're negative 2,000? What? Seriously? So they were being charged at some points to put electricity back into the grid because when the grid's got too much electricity, they don't want it, so they're actually making people pay for it. Obviously, mm. well, that means they'll stop putting electricity into the grid. That same concept, at a much smaller level, works for home users. If you've got that battery and you want to sell some power from your battery back into the grid, at different times of the day, you might get paid anywhere up to, say, $17 per kilowatt hour which isn't too bad if you generate a few kilowatt hours during the day, middle of the better day. Than a hole in the head. It is better than a hole in the head. You might sometimes get paid a dollar per kilowatt hour, but if you're happy to sit there and manipulate your sales time, manipulate probably too strong a word, check the prices, keep an eye on the prices, and then sell when it's the right time, who knows? Your neighbour might be getting your electricity, but you're getting paid $17 per kilowatt hour for it. The neighbour's just paying the normal price because he's got a contract, he or she's yeah. got a contract with the electricity provider, the retailer. But the retailer needs to be able to provide electricity as part of their contract. And there are certain times of the day that they're paying a lot of money for that electricity. So why not cash in on it? I read a few different stories. Some people have ended up putting multiple batteries in their home. Not so much for them to use in their own power, but for them to generate enough that they can then sell it back and make good money out of it. And they've probably got a separate contract with some electricity provider just buying electricity at their 30 cents per kilowatt hour or whatever price they might pay. But they're just using the battery not to power their home during the night to sell it back into the grid. Amazing. (laughs) So I think in general we're seeing a fairly big change here. So to give you an idea... It used to be about 5% of households, if you go back two years, maybe three years ago, about 5% of households put a battery in when they put their solar panels in. Already, installers are seeing that's jumped to 20% of installation, so it's a fairly big jump. And when you might have been hitting, say, twenty to 30,000 
home battery installations a year, go back two or three years ago. It's already hitting 50,000 a year at the moment. And some of the installers are saying within five years, they believe there'll be possibly two million batteries spread out across the nation out there. So it's certainly changing quite dramatically. And again, if people are seeing $17 per kilowatt hour, it doesn't take them long to get the price back for their battery. One thing that has been something that I think I got wrong in my predictions when I make these wild predictions, seemingly every new year turns around and I make these wild predictions for the next year, and I had some predictions about what would happen with home batteries, how the prices would go down and the uptake would go up dramatically. The pricing doesn't seem to have changed that much yet for your home battery. It still seems to have hovered around the same price. Maybe it's come down a little bit if you did a comparison at CPI, but, but it hasn't seemed to change that much. But the uptake has gone up quite dramatically. So maybe the producers and manufacturers there are saying, well, we don't need to drop the price because the demand is going up anyway, so we can maintain our price, even though the manufacturing is cheaper because they're increasing the volume. And you just look at that alone, when they've gone from 5% to 20%, then obviously there's a four times increase on the volume needed. And that's just one little segment there. So I imagine there's more demand out there and it's probably cheaper to manufacture, but those manufacturers are just cashing in at the moment. Electrical aviation is taking another step forward as a viable commuter option. And some would say, Matt, that this is no surprise, but what is the ins and outs of what's happening with electrical aviation? I think the real sweet spot here will be those small-ish aircraft, 15 to 30 seats, that kind of space or that kind of size, over the shorter distances, the maybe less than two-hour distances for those little commuter uh, trips. So uh, we're looking at sort of the, the east coast of Australia, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. if you're going Sydney, Melbourne, or if you're going yeah, yeah, inland right. to Sydney or inland to Melbourne, inland to Victoria, uh, to, to Brisbane, for example, I think that's where you'll see the real sweet spot. But there's one company in America, no, one company in, in Britain at the moment, who's developing a hydrid electric plane. And you think, why would you bother with a hydrid electric plane? Yeah. If you're going to do those short hauls, then you do it with batteries. But this particular company believes that what they can do is still provide the electricity generation and some small batteries with a turbine. So it's kind of like a normal plane, but that turbine can just sit there at constant speed, constant revs, just generating electricity. You've got batteries on board to take out that little bit of flow that's up and down, and then you're providing all that power through to a propeller that's basically being driven by an electric motor. So they believe that whole arrangement is more efficient than just having jet engines or turboprop engines on a plane. Yeah, right. So that's a, a different way of developing it. There are other companies out there that are developing electric only. There's a startup in California, for example, called Wright Electric, as in W-R-I-G-H-T, ah, so taking off the Wright brother's expect, name. Yeah. Yep, uh, they, they are actually looking for a 100-seat aircraft, but again, that'll be some type of hybrid model, uh, but other ones are, are looking at a, a fully electric model. So there's a whole range of different things happening there. Most people say, sure, I can see maybe, maybe one day cars will eventually get there with electric motors, but oh, planes, it's just craziness, isn't it? But they're out there now, they're flying right now, and it's just a matter of them developing far enough, getting regulatory approval, and then we'll see them up in the airs. They'll be quieter in them. They'll be much more efficient. So we'll see prices come down. Those short hops, those hops that are gained, that one and a half, two hour, yeah. even one hour hops. And, and the UK would be awesome place to, to do that. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I'm intrigued, the fact that they're going for this hybrid model. See, the hybrid model to me seems to make more sense when you're looking at those longer flights. So if you want to start yeah. doing flights from New York to London, you want to do flights, well, let's go further, Sydney to LA. Yeah. 
yeah. those longer flights, that's where batteries become a real problem because the amount of weight, the amount mm. of mass you've got to put up in the air, that uses up a lot of your power. So you need more mass to put up in the air to have that power to keep going and that creates more mass and then you get this ever-diminishing circle of return and so you're not going to go very far with it. So that hybrid concept works well, I think, in those cases. But in those shorter hops, I thought they would have yeah. just gone pure electric. But there's a huge amount of development happening here because companies realise that when you're developing planes, you don't think of the idea today and then whack it together tomorrow and off you go and let's start flying. There's a long development process. So some of these companies that are doing it, and Airbus is one that we've talked about before, BAE is doing it as well. So they're big companies that are doing it and they know that the development time frame that's in place before you actually get that plane up in the air with passengers on a commercial route. There's a fair few steps you've got to go through to get to that point. But an exciting uh, little space to watch, nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. And on a similar subject, the UK seem to be embracing drone delivery technology and are set to have the world's biggest drone superhighway over the next couple of years. I guess it helps to have a big population in a small area, doesn't it, Matt? It yeah. does, but it also happens, helps to have a government that's somewhat progressive and hopefully a new Prime Minister won't change this direction. But there was an announcement made by the British Parliament. They're putting together a 273 British pound project to create these skyways, these drone superhighways, where they believe that you'll get a lot of this transport off the roads and up into the skies. And they've picked a few places in particular. They've picked Reading, Oxford, Cambridge, Coventry, Rugby. So some of these places there where they see lots of lorries, as they would call them, on the roads, taking transport amongst those different places, rather than have them in lorries and have all that traffic on the roads. Obviously, there's some pollution that goes along with that, but just congestion on the roads in general. Anyone that's yeah. been on UK roads knows how congested some of those roads are. Putting that traffic up into the air, but having designated highways for that, designated air highways or skyways. Yeah, so you're looking at a particular altitude that is just designated for that sort of stuff, yeah? Yeah, for these drones. And then they'll be like commercial aircraft when you're flying from Sydney to LA compared to LA to Sydney, you're flying at the odd thousands of feet compared to the even thousands of feet. So you might be flying in one direction at 33,000 or 35,000, in the other direction at 34 and 32,000, for example. So you know you've always got a thousand feet of separation for, car, for cars, for planes that are crossing in either direction. Mm. It'll be the same sort of process here where this whole skyway is, there's going to be all these drones out there. They're not there yet, but maybe we need to develop the legislation, develop the rules, put them in place now. So... When we go from one or two occasional drones to hundreds of drones, then we've got the rules in place and we reduce the accidents. And what they're really concerned about are the accidents that might happen coming close to the landing parts at each end because that's where the people are. Mm. When they're out over the countryside, then if they happen to have a collision up in the air, well, they haven't got people in them and they're probably going to fall onto dirt or rivers or somewhere where there's no people, you'd be very unlucky for that drone to fall on top of you out in those spaces. But when they come into land, they talk about that last section, bring it down the last 10 feet, for example, when you're getting close to people. That's where they're really concerned. But again, yeah. putting all these rules in place and then saying to various companies, if you want to start taking your freight from Coventry to Rugby, for example, then here's the skyway that's designated for that. And it may not be a direct route, even though one of the advantages of a drone would be shorten the distance by going direct, mm. it may be that a direct route goes over a highly populated area that might be noisy for them and might also be a bit dangerous if you've got it flying over there. So instead, go out to the east and then turn another direction and go up to that area. It might add three minutes to the trip, but we're safer or we're happy with it being a bit safer. 
But it's a serious investment by the British government, isn't it? 273, yeah. British, 273 million, million British pounds is a serious investment. So they're not thinking, oh, well, just... It's not for giggles. No, we'll put a few lines on a page and there you go, guys, have a go at that. They're actually putting some serious rules in place. So I, I actually like the concept that they're saying, we understand there's a future out there that involves these drones, these drones doing deliveries, so let's put everything in place ready for it to go. So when it happens, we can say, for once, very rarely, the legislation's ahead of the technology. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, again, another amazing story. Here's something that sounds like it came from the Tatooine set of the Star Wars universe. Sand batteries, folks. They're set to become a thing, perhaps even soon. They're a way to store heat for months at a time. Matt, what's the science behind these sand batteries, and is this a technology that could revolutionise winter heating in Australia? Well, I actually meant to do a bit more research on this. Obviously, sand's got <laughs> You haven't a, done your homework. I haven't done my homework on this, Silicon but I'm hoping, yeah. I'm hoping that you can help me out oh, here. So sand must have a good ability to retain heat. Well, it's got network covalent bonding there, and I reckon those big, strong bonds are able to absorb some energy and get their vibration going, but maintain that. Uh, I think it's probably to do with their And there's probably some measure. There's probably some measure of different materials, their ability to withhold heat. Specific heat capacity. There you go. So a metal, for example, would have a very low specific heat capacity because it would leak its heat out very quickly. That's very right. Sand must have a very high. Water's actually got a really high specific heat capacity. It takes a lot to warm up water and then it holds that. And that's what our problem is for uh, our global warming, of course. But uh, yeah, um, I can't tell you off the top of my head what the specific heat capacity of uh, sand is, but if it's greater than 4.18, then that would be pretty market. And sand, sorry, water is 4.18? Uh, 4.18 uh, joules per kilogram per Kelvin. Right. Yeah. So, and if it's not greater than that, it might be easier to fill a container or a silo with sand than it is with water. Yeah. But you could also do it with water because, again, you're right, it's got a high specific heat capacity. Sorry, I should have said kilojoules, but anyway, but yeah, moving right along. Yeah, can't right let that one go. But so I need to do my course. homework and see what the specific heat capacity for sand for is. Sand is. Yeah. But obviously, yeah. obviously it's a reasonably high level. So the idea here is that you take something that's got a high specific heat capacity, like sand. It yeah, takes stick- a bit to warm it up, but yeah. once it warms up, it holds that fairly well. And so you stick it in a container. Anyone walking on a beach on a hot day knows about that. Yeah, exactly. So you stick it in a container and you run some pipes through that container. When you've got the availability of power, so that might be in a summertime or even during a daytime, you run some heat through those pipes and you heat up the sand. Then when you need that heat, you run an air through those pipes that then draws the heat away from that sand mm. and use that heat. Now, they're first of all talking about it in Finland where they're using it to heat up homes during winter. And you say, really? Does Finland even get the heat in the summer to do that? Well, apparently <laughs> enough there, but you could also, not even so much the heat, you can still use some form of renewable power to generate enough heat. Yeah. So you could have some yeah. solar panels during the summer, have that heating it up and then during winter. But I found that incredible that I imagine when I first started looking at this story that you might heat it up during the day and then at night time you're releasing that heat. But they're talking about heating it up during the summer months and then releasing that heat over the winter months because they're talking about getting the sand up to 500 degrees Celsius. Oh, right. Yeah. So that might be a bit of the issue with going for water because obviously at 500 (laughs) it becomes not liquid anymore. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is you heat it at 500 degrees Celsius, you sit it in there in the container and it doesn't lose much of that heat while it's sitting there and then when you need that heat, you pull the air through those pipes and that's 
taking that heat back into whatever you're trying to heat up. But you can do that for a long period of time because you've got it at 500 degrees Celsius. You don't need the heat back into your home at 500 degrees Celsius, obviously. So mm. it sounds like a fascinating concept. Now, can you do it for somewhere like Australia where we don't need the cooling as much? And so the idea here is, in this country, would you do it to say, for example, rather than heat your home, actually do it where you might, for example, generate some power, drive a steam turbine, for example. But if you did that, driving a steam turbine, you're only getting about 20 to 25% efficiencies. So you're not getting that efficiency that you might need. So you've looked at the specific heat capacity of sand for me? 840 kilojoules per kilogram per Kelvin. So that's higher than four. That's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Yeah, so there you go. So that's why they're talking about sand rather than water. That's, yes. That's quite incredible. One of the things that you're always looking for in something like that is something that's got the good properties that you want. 800 sounds good, but also abundance of it. It's also an abundance and also um, it's got a very – well, you talked about water t- turning into a vapour. Yep. Um, sand has got a very – well, silicon dioxide, a very high melting point and yeah. boiling point, yeah. So you put it at 500 degrees Celsius and that's fine. You've got some serious work to do on the other side using some of your renewable power to get it up to 500 degrees Celsius. Yeah, wow. But again, I, I, I probably say this too often, James, I love that people come up with all these different ideas. Who sat around one day and said, you know what, sand's got a specific heat capacity of over 800. How can we use that? <laughs> Rather than just burn your feet probably, on a beach on a yeah. summer's day, is there another way Maybe we could use that? Maybe someone was sprinting to get to the water and just thinking, oh, that sand is so hot. That's Surely right. there'd be a purpose for that. I wonder how hot that gets. I wonder how hot it could get. Uh, gee, let's go and beat it to 500 degrees Celsius in a silo and use that to heat our homes. So that's the first place we'll wow. see it, I think, is in something like a very cold place, Europe, for example, where you might need that heat, but then starting to think of other ways you might use it. I think there'll be different ways to use it there, but it sounds like a pretty cool concept, doesn't it? Yeah, and just having these yeah these silos of sand <laughs> that can... Warm your house for months. What's the silo doing over there next to your house? Oh, that's my heater. <laughs> that's, that's my heater. Have you gone crazy? <laughs> Boom. The news has hit and the writing is on the wall for fossil-fueled cars in Australia. The ACT is the first state with a policy to phase out petrol and diesel cars and it has the Conservatives up in arms. But, Matt, the seal has been broken now and perhaps... Perhaps we're going to see some bigger and bolder moves in the foreseeable future for EVs. I have a deep question here, James. Mm. Is it possible to feel two somewhat contradictory emotions at the same time? Oh, really? I, this has got you in a contra- you're in a in a, like a, a torment. I am. I was excited and disappointed all at the same time with this. I was really excited that finally, as you said, the seal's been broken somewhere in Australia. Some jurisdiction, some state, some territories finally said you know what, maybe we're just lagging behind here a bit. Maybe we should do something about it. So I was all excited going, yes, somewhere in Australia, good on you. And then I went, wow, it's disappointing that this is the first jurisdiction in this nation and we've only gone 2035. <laughs> so um, so I was disappointed and excited and disappointed all at the same time. And I don't know which I am at the moment. I'm still between the two. Maybe I'm well, both there, at the same time. There are big time. arguments coming from overseas. I know America's um, suffering a bit of pushback with some of their legislation as well. People are saying, oh, look, you're trying to move too fast and our energy grid isn't going to be able to support it and whatnot. And there are people in Australia saying the same thing. Mm. And at the current state, yes, that may be correct. But this is not where the technology ends and this is not where the infrastructure ends. Obviously, we are able to make plans for this sort of stuff. Way back in April 2019, I wrote one of my tech columns that had the seven most common myths I'd heard 
about owning an EV, and so I tried to bust those myths. Myth number six was the electrical network. The argument was that if everyone changed from ice to electric cars, the network or the grid just couldn't handle the load. Someone was saying it takes 25, it's 25 um, times the amount of a, a normal refrigerator. So if you've got an electric car, you've got to charge it up, and that's going to take 25 times the power of an, your, your refrigerator. Yeah, so what I did was I actually did the calculations. So there were about 1.1 million new cars sold in Australia each year. Now let's say that instead of the less than 2% of EV sales we have at the moment, let's say that jumped to 20%, an unheard of number, but let's say we jumped up to there, that'd be about 220,000 cars sold in the next year that are EVs. Now EVs use, on average, maybe 16 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres. Now the average distance that an Aussie drives is 15,530 kilometres per year. That's from ABS data. So at that average distance, 220,000 cars, adds up to about 3.4 billion kilometres driven. So that would require roughly 512 gigawatt hours of electricity. Now, when we look at our total consumption in this nation, that's about 0.22%. So that would mean every year that we could get 20% of our sales, our new car sales, that's adding 0.22% to our electricity production. Not much. Now, give you an idea, there's 33 wind turbines at a wind farm near us here in a place called Bedengra, and that produces 0.19% of the electricity used in Australia. So 33 wind turbines will be enough to power 20% of those EVs. Now, if we said, for example, we could get all of our 19.2 million cars on our roads changed to electric, so I snap my fingers, magic wand, and all cars straight away, were electric. That would add less than 20% to our electricity production. So don't forget, we've got a fair way to go there before we get to that point where all the cars are replaced. And I'm pretty sure we'll put in more renewable power, more wind turbines, more solar farms, other methods of producing electricity before we get to that point where all of our cars are changed over. So I think we're pretty safe on that. The thing I haven't put in those calculations is that all refineries that are producing petrol now, petrol and diesel, they use some power as well. So you'd actually have less power consumed from them if they were producing less petrol, less diesel. And so some of that power could be used to power electric cars. I don't think it would replace it, but it's just another thing to put in there in the mix. But we could definitely handle, the grid could definitely handle more than the actual consumption of electric vehicles if we went ahead at 20%, 30%, even if we went up to some ridiculously high level, if we went up to Norway-like levels, I still believe our grid could handle it. And also, our grid would increase its production. People out there would be able to say, we can sell more electricity, let's get that project that's on the shelf up and going as quick as possible. So I think we're pretty safe there, but it's a nice, convenient myth for people. For the for the the thing that was um, that I saw where someone was saying oh, I was twenty five times the amount of electricity you need um, for to run your uh, refrigerator. That's if you're running it down. Okay, so so if you're charging up that just top up each night, you're not topping up for the whole night. You're not topping up the whole battery. You're just doing a little bit of a top up, 
very briefly. Mm. And so that number of 25 times actually is only a very brief time that you're running that, that power. And so you're not necessarily running your bill into something that is unmanageable. No, no, that's right. No, you, you will find the amount of money you would save on your petrol with petrol prices being so ridiculous at the moment, yeah. petrol or diesel, then you're way, way in front from that. Mm. But also it's a strange comparison, is it? Because your fridge is not something that runs all day. It's got a mm. thermostat in there the motor will turn on and off during the day i find it strange when people have to come up with these other things when they yeah. talk about water and it's so many olympic size they try tools. to make it relatable but they try yeah misleading in doing so because a fridge is such a variable if mm. different fridges have different amounts of power that they might draw so yeah. it's anyway I, I understand why they try and do it to make it relatable but i want to know the accurate data so just misleading. yeah tell me the accurate data but you're right most people that drive evs just drive it for days, weeks, depending on how much they use it. And then, oh, battery's getting down now, down to 20%. Oh, I might plug it in tonight, and they plug it in, and they'll charge up. So they do probably charge up all in one hit. Some people might just top it up, but they'll, they'll tend to charge it all in one hit. But that's not every night. Mm. That's when they do every week or two weeks, and that's going to spread the load out across there. Yeah. But again, it's that whole thing about the time it takes us to get to the point where we have all the cars on the road, EVs, is not tomorrow. Now, I know some of the renewable energy projects just being built around this area, they're happening, they're happening quickly. And again, if electricity production, if we needed more of it, then those providers would say, there's a market here, I can make some money out of building more renewables, mm. let's get into it. So that's going to happen. So the whole thing about, oh no, it'll wreck our whole grid. No, that's just one of those common myths that people throw around that don't want to go to the modern world or don't want to believe in climate change or they're just trying to put other things in front of it or they're trying to sell your petrol car. And the Scandinavians haven't collapsed yet, have they? No, and I had I actually wrote an article this week, one of my columns that I write for various newspapers around the nation. I did mention this story we're talking about here about Canberra and the ACT moving ahead and this particular person. And people send me lots of emails and I love it when I get emails from people. And this person said, well, we shouldn't be legislating that. We should be waiting until it can happen. <sighs> but what a crazy concept. And he threw in the old furphy. He said, and our grid can't handle it. I'm an electrician, so I know our grid can't handle it. I went, oh, just because you're an electrician doesn't mean you actually understand the grid. But obviously you don't understand the grid. But again, they might have been thinking about changing every car tomorrow over. Mm. But that's never whatever yeah. change you have is going to take some time to come through. So I looked around the world as well. I thought 2035 is a long way away. Long way away. Long way. Even when they talk about some of these targets for 2030, I think that's a long way away. It's a bit closer. But if I look around the world, there are certain places that have got either cities or countries that have got changes that are being signaled to the world well in advance of what the ACT does. So Norway, for example, 2025, no fossil fuel cars are going to be sold in Norway from 2025. Now, that's all right. They're already at 92%. That's way above. And actually, that gentleman mentioned, because I did talk about Norway as well, about the fact that how could you possibly compare Norway with a smaller population, smaller number of cars to Australia? But when you look at the outright numbers, if you look at the average number of sales of cars in Norway, and then because it's such a high percentage, you're getting about 150,000 EVs sold in Norway each year. Mm. Australia, a million cars, less than 2%, less than 20,000 EVs sold. So even Norway, when you take a, a, the small number of cars they sell, they're still selling way more EVs than we are here in this nation. So anyway, Norway has banned them by 2025, Belgium 2026. A whole bunch of countries by 2030, you've got Denmark, Germany, Greece, Iceland, Israel, Netherlands, Singapore, Sweden, the UK, Slovenia, 2031, and then a whole bunch of other countries I won't go through in 2035. So there are whole nations banning it 
well in advance of 2035. And cities, you've got cities like Antwerp, Athens, Mexico City, all 2025. And then a whole bunch of 2030, Amsterdam, Auckland, Barcelona, Cape Town. I won't go through the whole list there. But a whole bunch of other cities that are banning those as well. So 2035 for one little ACT in Australia. Mm. That's why I kind of was not that excited, maybe not as excited as I could have been. Maybe it's the start. As I said, it's breaking the seal and maybe other people, you know, other governments around the country can sort of step up and say, I reckon we can do this, folks. Yeah, I think you're right. It does seem to signal. So that's a good start. We need, it's like, um, we don't like to regard ourselves as followers, but we kind of are. Yeah, we are in this scenario, unfortunately. The other good part about it, I think, is that it'll probably be a moot point. By the year 2035, I'm guaranteeing here right now, James, in 2022, I'm oh, putting let's it out mark there. This, folks. Wait for it. In 2035, you will find it very difficult to find a fossil fuel power car to buy, a brand new one I'm talking about. Hmm. I just don't think any manufacturers by 2035 will be out there producing new cars that are running on petrol or diesel. It'll be like buying yourself a Beta VCR. <laughs> exactly right. You want Beta, but you can't buy any movies on Beta. What do you want that for? There'll be no petrol stations there now. There will be, because there'll still be cars on the road. There'll still people that have bought cars beforehand. But buying a new one, you walk into a dealer and say, I'm after your best petrol engine car, they'll look at you as if you're from another time era, another mm. time travel that's come from the past and jumped forward several decades. So even though... The message is being sent there about 2035. I just feel like it's no big deal because Hmm. you just can't do it by then. But at least they're sending the signal. Because at the moment, Australia has the potential for being a dumping ground for all those companies around the world that have got... get rid of their fossil fuel cars. Where are we going to go with these? We've still got this production line that's got to produce another 100,000 to get our money back on R&D. And Australia, let's send them over there. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, to start, let's hope it goes further and goes further much quicker. And on that note, with our own battery gauge now teetering dangerously close to zero, we're very much in need of a a recharge, so we'd better sign off before we fade to black, Matt. (laughs) Indeed, James. I do (laughs) like the way you tie in the stories there. (laughs) I'm liking the idea of those sand batteries, though, and I'm going to look into that a little bit more. Some clever cookies out there. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm James Eddy, and as per usual, it has been an absolute pleasure to bring you the show, and we hope that you'll join us again in another week's time.